This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Tegan is still in ISO. Today, general practice. Your GP is at the centre of the Australian healthcare system, although from the way GPs are often treated, you wouldn't necessarily think so. The budget disappointed many in primary care because they thought the government had big plans. Well, we'll talk to one of the authors of one of those big plans, which, if they come about, will affect how you and I receive our health care from family doctors. The pandemic isn't over, you might have noticed, and there's still an enormous gap in the immunisation rates in low-income countries, and that affects us all. We'll talk with one of the people trying to refresh the funding for global immunisation this coming Friday. And painkillers and your immune system. Researchers at the University of Sydney have reviewed multiple studies from around the world, and they found that common pain relievers have a tangible effect on our resistance to infection, which is sometimes bad, sometimes good. These medications may also reduce our responses to vaccination. This important piece of work may change how doctors prescribe and what you and I buy over the pharmacy counter. The lead author is Dr. Christina Abdul-Shahid in the University of Sydney's School of Public Health. Welcome back to The Health Report, Christina. Thanks, Norman. What was the nature of the studies you reviewed? I mean, were they lab studies? Were they real-life clinical studies where they were doing clinical trials, that sort of thing? So what we did in this study is we actually looked at the evidence across all experimental settings from blood-based research through to animal studies and also human clinical trials. And what were you looking for? So basically we were interested in seeing how these medicines, common analgesic medicines used for pain like opioid analgesics, antipyretic analgesics such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medicines and paracetamol, how they impact um, immune parameters in uh, laboratory settings and animal models, but also how it translates into human studies and whether we're seeing consistent findings in the human trials as well. I was just say antipyretic means that they're, they, they break fevers. It's to, you, you, use, you use it to reduce a fever. That's correct. What were the key findings? So surprisingly, we found that uh, morphine, which is one of the most commonly used opioid analgesics everywhere in the world, particularly in the post-surgical settings, um, actually reduces uh, immune parameters that are involved in our um, innate immunity, so the first line of defence, things like the natural killer cells. And what that means is that it can potentially um, pose pose greater risk of developing infection or responding badly uh, once an infectious disease has been contracted. And when we looked at human studies, what we found was there was, in fact, um, increased risk with of infection with morphine and also other opioids such as oxycodone and fentanyl, which are also quite common. So it seems that the laboratory laboratory and animal studies um, are consistent with what we're seeing in human studies as well. I mean, that's major, but it's unlikely with an old drug like morphine, there's been randomized clinical trials. Is, is this these just observational studies to see what happens when you give morphine versus maybe a historical group of patients who don't get it? 
The majority are case control studies or retrospective cohort studies which follow participants over a period of time to see how, um, how whether they developed infection or things like that. But there has been some very small randomised control trials which have compared morphine to other opioids like tramadol, for example, in people with cancer. And what they found was that there is a slightly increased risk of infection with uh, morphine compared to some of these other opioids. What's the alternative? We'll come to the others in a minute, but what's the alternative given, I mean, it's almost standard operational procedure that you treat pain with um, a morphine infusion or a, you know, an opioid infusion. That's right. And basically it's too early to make recommendations about potentially suitable alternatives. But what we did find in our review is that opioids such as tramadol and tapentadol, uh, which are sort of less classical opioids, if you like, seem to have less of an effect on the immune system. But I would also say that they were far less uh, studied. So morphine was probably the most interrogated medicine in the group. And so what we need is future um, large studies to be able to really ascertain which of those medicines are suitable in, in the um, context of post-surgical pain management. And some like tramadol can really knock you about. So let's go to vaccination now. This is really one of the most important findings, I think. Yeah, so with vaccinations, uh, what we found was that uh, antipyretic analgesics like um, ibuprofen, uh, like other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs can actually uh, reduce antibody levels if used prophylactically. And what that means is that if it's used directly before a vaccination or vaccine is administered. And so what... And is paracetamol uh, one of those? Paracetamol is one of those as well, and it's been especially studied in uh, the context of child uh, immunisation. And what if you take it afterwards? You wait until to see whether or not you get symptoms and then you pop um, a couple of Panadol. Yeah, so we didn't find um, very convincing evidence from large trials to suggest that therapeutic use uh, reduces anti the desirable antibody levels. So what that means is that uh, if symptoms of pain or fever arise following a vaccination, it is okay to consider those medicines, but it's probably wise to, to use them if the symptoms are severe enough to, uh, to warrant treatment. But don't take two ahead of the jab at the GPs or the pharmacist? No, definitely not uh, to take them before vaccination, that's right. And good news that aspirin could be quite useful for tuberculosis. Yeah, so this was another surprising finding. Um, tuberculosis, just to, to give you an idea, is one of the most uh, burdensome infectious diseases globally. It's the second big, biggest killer after COVID. And unfortunately, the organism that's um, responsible for this disease is becoming more and more resistant to our current best treatments, to the point where the World Health Organization has actually come out and said uh, TB, drug-resistant TB, is one of the biggest public health crises that we face right now. And so um, 
Aspirin was actually shown in animal studies to reduce TB burden. And when we look at human clinical trials, we actually saw that aspirin reduces the incidence of stroke and death. But it is important to note that the human studies didn't look at the effect of aspirin on the immune system. So there's still a bit of work to be done. And finally, and this is also potentially good news, is that indomethacin, which is a very old-fashioned non-steroidal drug, like a, it goes back a long time, might have an anti-COVID-19 effect. That's right. So uh, in vitro, so in, in laboratory setting, it has been shown to have some antiviral effects. Uh, what we need to do now is to see whether those um, benefits are seen in, in human studies, particularly the critically ill, critically ill, those who might not be responding very well to the current best treatments. But there is uh, a need to, to um, do some a little bit of pre-work before we move into those large clinical trials and determine the best dose, the best timing of administration, so that we can really hopefully um, determine or give this potentially important medicine the best chance of success in COVID. There's a bit of a track record there where you find response in the test tube, but it doesn't play, play out when you look That's at right. in clinical trials, ivermectin being one of those examples. Christina, it's been a pleasure talking to you and very interesting. Thanks for having me, Norman. Dr. Christina Abdul-Shahid is in the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney, and this is RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. One of the features of efficient and effective healthcare systems is that they're based on what's called primary healthcare. Doctors, nurses and other health professionals look after you in the community, in theory, keeping you as healthy as you can be and out of hospital. They also act as gatekeepers. You can't just turn up at a specialist rooms, for example. You need to be referred by your GP. But Australia, despite our relative good health compared to other countries, has major problems with general practice. While by international standards, we are probably overproducing medical graduates, not enough for going into general practice, and certainly not enough going into rural and regional areas. So we supplement Australian graduates, who are becoming specialists in our cities, with large numbers, almost the same number again, of international medical graduates. As Australians become older, they accumulate more complex medical problems, and this requires coordination and navigation through the system. Yet the way we pay GPs doesn't incentivize the continuity of care that many people need and want. In response to these and many other issues, an independent committee developed a 10-year plan for the reform of general practice in Australia. And it was hoped that last week's budget would get the reform plan on the road. But at first blush, it didn't seem to. Dr Steve Hambleton co-chaired the reform group. Steve is a Brisbane GP. He's chief clinical advisor of the Australian Digital Health Agency. He's also a past president of the federal AMA. Welcome back to the Health Report, Steve. Oh, thank you very much. What are the key elements of the reform plan that make a difference to us as consumers? Well, I think you've drawn a very good picture of the system. It's working quite well, but it is in need of transformation. Uh, we're ba our funding system is based on something that's now 38 years old. It was built for a different problem. Our current problem is chronic and complex care. You're talking about that Medicare needs coordination. Now, and the way Medicare is designed. Sorry to interrupt. Yes, indeed. So um, Medicare was designed 38 years ago for a different problem. And, you know, in at the moment, the model of care that we've just described, uh, Medicare is in conflict with it. So we need to complement Medicare, and that's really the the focus of this report. And to explain uh, one, why you say oh, that, 
sorry to, again to interrupt, but just so that we take yeah, the audience sure. with us. You're talking about fee for service. Essentially, you, you, it's pretty good if you've got a sore arm and you need to get that fixed up or you've got a cut in your hand and you need to get that stitched. But fee for service is not a good model for ongoing continuity of care. No, no, it certainly isn't. Um, and we've tried to, you know, cobble things together to help fee for service work. We've got chronic and complex care plans. Uh, we do bring in allied health professionals, but fee for service really does incentivise throughput. So the more times you visit, uh, the more revenue is generated, uh, and that's in conflict with spending longer with people who are complex to deal with some of those complex issues, to educate them about their health care, and to help them with their health journey. And we're disconnected from the acute sector as well, the hospitals and our specialists, and we need to connect people up. Uh, you know, we need one health system that feels like one health system for individuals, and we need a funding system that underpins that so, uh, the, so it's the natural way we work. So what are the key elements of the reform plan? Well, I think the first thing we want to do is to strengthen that relationship that we've already got between patient and provider. So voluntary patient registration was the, uh, one of the recommendations, uh, and that means that, you know, you, you get certain benefits by linking with a practice better access to that practice, and in particular, it allows the practice to attract different funding, uh, different funding models based on the characteristics of the patients that enrol. And so things like, the entities like the primary health networks can work with the local hospital networks to solve problems locally that make sense, that save money for the health system. For example, uh, we see a lot of unplanned readmissions for people who end up in hospital. Now, if we could fund a process where those people could see their GP, uh, have the discharge process effectively managed and stop them from returning to the acute care sector, which is the really expensive sector. Overall, the experience is better for patients, it's better for the GPs, and it's actually better for the outcomes of the health system. And, and this is the, supposedly the first cab off the rank, and voluntary patient registration was supposed to start, wasn't it? Well, I think it was supposed to start during COVID, but now it's supposed to start, isn't it, July of this year, and yet there's nothing in the budget for it. Well, there isn't. And I, and I look, I'm very pleased that it's been referred to in the budget. I think that's really, really important. I mean, we've got a, an election well, that's coming up. That's cold comfort, isn't it? it? It is. And I know that uh, the organised profession's been very grumpy about it, but we, we actually have to start this journey. We have to focus on what's good for the country in the long term. And yes, we have to fund it properly. And we have to talk to all the funders, not just the federal government. We've got to talk to the state governments and we've got to talk to the private health insurers to make sure we're all working together for the benefit of the patient in front of us. Well, let's just take the private health insurers for a moment. I mean, they, they're they forbidden from working with general practitioners by law. They, they can only cover what's in hospital and therefore they're not allowed to actually care. They, they find out when somebody's got a problem when they make a claim. How are you going to work with private health insurers when there's they're not allowed to work with general practice? Well, they're not allowed to fund general practice to do things that are funded by Medicare, but we need to solve for that. Once we get a link between the provider and the patient, there's programs that private health insurers already operate that can work in conjunction with the GP to support the patients. For example, if you have a heart attack, yeah, uh, then uh, you know, there's a cardiac rehab process that everyone should in involve themselves in, and that leads to better outcomes. Lots of the private health insurers are offering that support structure. If you have diabetes, then you can get personalised support from your private health insurer to work with your GP. 
we absolutely need to connect those up. And the same goes for, I guess, the acute system, the public system. We do want to work better with our patients, with care navigators to support them on their journey. So what are the incentives for GPs to buy into this? Well, I think every GP would say that they're being squeezed by the system. We've seen Medicare freezes for a long period of time. Uh, People are focused on throughput and uh, they recognise that um, we need to do better. Uh, We need to be part of the population health solution and there needs to be meaningful funding that that flows because of the link between us and our patients. And that, of course, needs to be underpinned by data and with the patient's permission, we need to think about sharing that data uh, so that we know the level of need from the patient so we can do some resource allegation and service planning based on the needs of each practice. Now, two, three, maybe four weeks ago, I just can't remember the exact date, um, the AMA had a go at this, and um, some people say that the College of General Practitioners was working in cahoots with them, but that, that's just rumour, um, complaining that, uh, I mean, essentially saying that Effectively, when, when you talk about voluntary patient registration and what flows from that, when you were describing that process, it's investment in the practice itself. It's not necessarily money that's going into the pockets of individual GPs. It's strengthening the, the infrastructure of their general practice, providing more salaried staff and things like that. And the AMA and others are arguing that you, we just need more money in the system. And it, it said that that really annoyed the federal government. And it's one reason why there's not funding in the in the budget. Is that true? Well, solving this problem is very difficult. Um, and that's why we, I guess, spent the two years with all of the senior groups to say, well, what is the place we want to go to? The structure of general practice today makes it very difficult to deliver that funding effectively to the individuals making the decisions. Um, so, but we, you know, we, we do need to work and we need to work with uh, the primary health networks, the state governments and the federal government to increase the funding in general practice. And this is a mechanism where it can be done. Um, and we need to, you know, meaningfully save money, keep people out of hospital when they shouldn't be there and provide them better access to their GP. And, of course, one of the big arms of doing that has been telehealth, which uh, which has been a huge investment for government. But what I'd like to see, and I think the, the steering group would like to see, is that a lot of phone calls are made, but we know that a video... Um, connection with your regular doctor actually is a more richer way of actually uh, involving yourself with healthcare with that provider. Well, in fact, John Emery, Professor of General Practice in Cancer at the University of Melbourne, reckons that phone telehealth is one of the reasons for late cancer diagnosis because you're not looking at your patient. Well, I think it's, it's very true. There's a, certainly a richer amount of information transfer. It's a much more formalised process and there are ways of integrating it uh, into the clinical workflow. They're very, very simple and we need to pick them up. And I think we've got to do more work on that to make it easy for GPs to use and make it easy for our patients as well. So you, you've said, well, we've got to get other people involved. It's not just the Commonwealth government, but the Commonwealth, this is a Commonwealth government process, the steering group for the 10-year reform plan. They seem to be very proud of it. It would be a major achievement for the federal government if it went through. And yet a, a, a silence in the budget. I mean, you, you, you have to wonder, particularly and you've given two odd years of your life into this. Well, we certainly have, and we look. This uh, we all believe this is the way forward, but we are looking for government and the next minister uh, to actually invest in this appropriately, so we can we can all have confidence that this is a good way of going forward. Uh, simply doing um, increasing rebates or you know increasing that throughput 
really kicks the can down the road and all of the organisations that are involved in the recommendations of the steering group recognise that we've just got to have structural change in the way we because do Because it business. doesn't change behaviour if you just put more money in people's pockets. Absolutely. It just makes it someone else's problem. We need to fix this now and we need to make sure we have a comprehensive view of how we do it. Uh, the, recommend, the, the steering group also recommended implementation group made of similar people with experience in the system to say, well, what do we do next? Telephone telehealth really is a, well, it's not enough to deliver those improved access outcomes. Voluntary patient registration by itself is not enough unless there's funding reform that follows. You've got to do a lot. That's not enough unless we collect and share data with the patient's permission to make sure we can actually target care that's appropriate to those individuals. And just finally and briefly, Steve Hamilton, um, is it bipartisan? Does the Labour Party support it? Should they get into power? Well, I think all governments, state and federal, recognise health is a huge problem. Um, and health spending has been rising in every state, no matter what uh, what government's in charge. Um, I've been around when the Labour Party was uh, in the federal government and the Liberal Party. Uh, and both parties recognise unless we do something different and substantially different with the support of the profession, we're not going to get a better outcome. Let's hope. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Dr Steve Hamilton is co-chair of the steering group which developed the 10-year reform plan for general practice. It won't have escaped your notice that the pandemic is far from over. New variants are already appearing and will continue to do so, especially since there are vast populations in low-income countries with low levels of immunisation and therefore high levels of circulating coronavirus. In last week's budget, $85 million Australian was allocated to COVAX, the international programme for delivering COVID-19 vaccines, particularly to low-income countries. But that may not be enough. This Friday, the German government is co-hosting a global meeting of international leaders with the aim of raising US dollars, 5.2 billion, that's 7 billion Australian, for COVAX to fund a major push to ramp up vaccine coverage where it's needed. The organisation co-chairing the German meeting is Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance. Seth Berkeley is Gavi's chief executive and is based in Geneva. Welcome back to The Health Report, Seth. Thank you, Norman. Nice to hear your voice. Explain how COVAX works, particularly this thing called the advanced market commitment. So um, when originally we figured out that this was going to be a global pandemic, the worry was that developing countries would be left out like they had been in a previous pandemics. And so we created a two-tiered system, one for high-income countries and middle-income countries that they could buy vaccines from COVAX to help with uh, large volume purchases. And then the second part was for the lower income countries, the 92 lowest income countries, um, that we would provide donor finance to help them uh, purchase doses. And, and this has been quite successful. Uh, we've uh, since delivered 1.4 billion doses um, uh, to 145 countries, of which 90% of, of those have gone to low and lower middle income countries. So in some ways, it's a buyer's collective, but it's also shifting resources, you know, vaccine resources to low-income countries. What are the current statistics? on vaccine coverage in low-income countries? So, I mean, the good news is if you look at global numbers, um, about 58% of the world's population has received at least two doses 
For the AMC 92 countries, that number is 42 percent, so not quite equity, but on its way up. The challenge really is in low-income countries where we see um, uh, numbers of around 11 or 12 percent full vaccination, 15 percent at least one dose. And so that's where we've really been focusing recently. In January, there were 34 countries with less than 10 percent coverage. That's down to 19 now. But obviously, that's uh, way too many, and we really need to make sure that everybody's protected so we can stop those new variants that you talked about a minute ago. But the problem's not supply anymore, is it? You, you, there's plenty of vaccine around, isn't there? There is plenty of vaccine around, and that's been recent over the last few months. And of course, the challenge was in 2021, we had problems with export bans, we had problems with vaccine hoarding, and um, countries did not feel comfortable enough to do the type of long-range planning to be able to um, you know, work through what it would look like to get vaccines out to all their citizens. Now, with enough vaccine, that is happening. Of course, not necessarily always the right vaccine in the right place at the right time. But what we're really looking at now is trying to enhance the absorption capacities in countries and make sure their health systems, which tend to be weaker in the, in the lower-income countries, are as resilient as possible. So you're spending the $5.2 billion mostly on delivery rather than vaccines? So about um, $1.1 billion of it is for delivery and for ancillary type um, uh, 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 tools. So, for example, syringes and, and insurance for vaccines, insurance for the patients, you know, safety boxes, et cetera. $2.7 billion of it is actually for a pandemic pool. The purpose of that is to be prepared for if new variants require different vaccines that we should be able to get right in the queue at the beginning to purchase those vaccines. And in our agreements with the manufacturers, and we have the largest portfolio of vaccines in the world, we have the ability to pivot to new vaccines should they be required, or frankly, if countries are delayed in getting their coverage up, we will ultimately need to purchase uh, vaccines, um, you know, given that some of the ones that are around today will have expired. 85 million Australian dollars, a lot of money, but it's not a lot when you're looking for 7 billion Australian. Is the Australian government giving enough? Well, we appreciate the Australian government's support. Um, Australia has um, been a consistent supporter, both of Gavi and the AMC. Now, with the 85 million, we'll have contributed 215 million Australian. Um, Australia was, of course, the you know, the lead donor in Asia. We now see others also coming in. Japan has come in at a billion U.S. dollars. South Korea, 210 million U.S. dollars. And China at 100 million dollars. So we are seeing others step up as well, given the global need that's out there. Are you going to be asking Australia for more on Friday? I think it's the foreign minister who's going to the meeting. Um, well, of course, our, 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 we, we um, will be asking all of our donors to step up to the plate. One of the challenges, Norman, is that there is complacency now. People feel like it's over. But, of course, as you rightfully said, it is not over. And until we get the world covered, we are at risk, and not just from humanitarian purposes, but also for self, um, you know, uh, uh, taking care of ourselves purposes, because... 
you know, we're really not safe unless we're all safe. And that is something that people may not have believed in the past. But I think with the waves of outbreaks, people have seen how quickly an outbreak somewhere can spread around the world. So how is regular immunization going on around the world, childhood, preventable childhood diseases and so on, the bread and butter of Gavi before the pandemic? So we saw in 2020, March, April, a 30 to 40 percent very scary reduction when the lockdowns occurred across the world. Today, we've seen those um, numbers improve pretty dramatically. And we think the world is around is down about three and a half to four percent. Of course, the data is not as secure as it was prior to the pandemic because people haven't been doing as many surveys. And um, that may not sound um, like it's down too much. That's because we have very strong, resilient immunization systems. But of course, we've worked very hard to get coverage up to where it is. And that will mean that millions of children will not be receiving doses. So our first priority is to restore those doses and then continue on the climb to try to make sure we leave no one behind, um, given the importance of immunization for public health. Well, good luck on Friday. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Seth Berkeley is Gavi's Chief Executive based in Geneva. This has been The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.